Nope, that's not good morning. It's afternoon. Hey, Internet. Wow, what a tremendous Sunday morning. Fifth Sunday, Judica. Fifth Sunday in Lent it has been. I just got finished doing divine services every several minutes, eight to ten minutes or so per family, private masses uh, at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford, Illinois. No more than ten people. We're definitely still sheltering in place. Everything's being done really sanitary, really careful, and yet we're getting people to supper. I just spent five hours. I said, doing divine services over and over again, I said the Lord's Prayer today at least 30 times. I said the Apostles' Creed today at least 30 times. I said the words of institution today at least 30 times. Oh, I'm tired. It was a good day. It was a really cool, really good day. Uh, People continuing to let their faith lead them uh, to be undisturbed and uh, uh, unashamed of what we believe as Christians. So everyone who came through the church today, I also told them that today— uh, Mad Corona Daily, my videos, the stuff I do on YouTube, we're going to be doing kind of what the sermon would have been today uh, if if we'd had church the normal way. And uh, in that then, I don't know. I don't know that I can really provide for you here the same feel you would get from the sermon. There's a certain gravity that goes on in Augustness when you're when you're vested and you're in the pulpit. But I hope that what I share with the text for you today, if you've been following the Old Testament series particularly, continues to encourage you about all the times and places where the Lord has proven himself faithful and that ours is not not so very different at the end of the day from any of those because it's the same answer all the way through. So here we go. We're going to be looking today at 1 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, trying to pull together everything that happens in the call of Samuel. And this is the setup for the call and the anointing of, of Saul, the first king of, of Israel. But we don't want to get to that yet. We just want to deal with Samuel. So remember that what we're coming out of now is the time of the judges, or perhaps called the saviors. Those who God raised up as like literally physical warriors who would defend Israel, a nation, with a promise at the middle of that nation, and that promise being Jesus Christ, the seed born of woman, eventually to come from that bloodline, to defend that bloodline and that nation against those who would destroy it, sometimes for random reasons and sometimes because they just hated actual salvation. And, and so in this sense, uh, these saviors, these judges, they're raised up to save the people from the ramifications of their own unbelief. That's all God's mercy, even though the people and the stories just keep getting worse and worse and worse. Life gets worse and worse and worse. But don't forget that the story of Ruth is also during the time of judges, a time of faithfulness, a time where people are just, well, they don't like their government, but they sure love their religion, some of them. Uh, in this, then, you have a scenario that comes to pass a bit later involving a guy named Eli. And, and this is going to happen in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, they're all kind of the same book. Probably eventually redacted, that is, edited by the same author. Although the original writing, you can debate that and there's no real knowing. Uh, what we know is that they're scripture, they're attested to in canon. Uh, they are inspired and without error as the history, really, uh, of the line of David, right? That's how you got to see the um, the kings, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st, uh, 2nd Samuel's beam. But it does start with, and even could be called 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Samuel, because all that gets this gets kicked off by this guy Samuel, who comes about during the life of this other guy, Eli. Okay, so we're going to we're going to jump to a little bit of text here and I'm going to have to give you some background. I really struggled with this one because to try to fit the whole story of. Oh, that's not what I wanted. Yeah, that's what I wanted to try to hit the whole story of of Samuel 
into a reading is kind of impossible. I tried really hard. I chopped this thing up a bit, but there's more that comes before this. Samuel has a miraculous birth, not unlike Samson, not unlike, well, who else is out there? Uh, Moses, not quite as much. Um, I know I'm missing one that we already passed in in the histories. Uh, But obviously, oh yeah, Jacob, right? Uh, No, sorry, hold on, Isaac. There we go. Not unlike Isaac. Um, Forgive me, again, five hours of masses all day long. My brain ain't working so well. But... uh, and I'm going to lose it entirely. I did. See, it went. There it went. In either case, people are living during the time of the judges, and the high priest is doing what he's supposed to do. At Shiloh, not at Jerusalem, at Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant and all the implements of the Levitical system, all the things they are to do to receive salvation, because it's already there for them, they just have to believe it's true, it's all there at Shiloh. And the guy in charge of that's a guy named Eli. Oh, that's right. Miraculous birth, miraculous birth was what I was talking about earlier. There's a guy named Eli. Eli is the high priest. He's in charge of the entire thing. And his sons, because it's the way it was set up, they're also priests. And one of them will be high priest someday because that's the way God set up the whole thing to work. These are these are descendants of Aaron, right? Uh, and at a certain point, Eli is, is serving and he comes outside of the tabernacle, the, the tent, right? You have all of these... Uh, hanging draperies in a big square forming the courtyard. So he's outside of that. And he sees this woman weeping on the ground. And he says to her, you know, you should stop drinking. <laughs> okay. Um, she's like, I'm not drunk. I'm praying. Uh, and he's like, oh, well, then the Lord grant your request. But he, being kind of who he is, he didn't really care to know what that request was. Um, and he, d- he didn't know. Well, what the request was was that she could have a son, even though she was barren, even though her husband was married to others who had children and loved her more than them, which that might have been an interesting thing. In any, any case, she wanted a child, so she prayed, she prayed, she prayed. The Lord grants Hannah this request, and you have a great bit of text, an awful lot like Mary's Magnificat, in which she sings the praises of God, who, who brings down the high to the low and brings up the low to the high, all this great stuff. That's all chapter one. After he's born, he's brought back, he's given to Eli. I mean, can you imagine this? The lady shows up, God gave me this baby, and now he's yours. <laughs> uh, so so this young man, Samuel, uh, son of Hannah, son of, um, uh, what's his name? I don't have it here in front of me, so I can't remember it. It starts with an E, right? Yeah. Samuel Elkanah. There we go. It's my daughter's middle name. I should know it. Uh, Elkanah, created by God. The son of Elkanah, this little boy, Samuel, when he's a certain age, is brought, he's left at the temple, and he ends up, the tabernacle, he ends up growing up there. All right. Meanwhile, Eli's sons are not good people. They're not just bad people. They're really bad people. That's really where our text picks up. Samuel is ministering as a young boy at this point, uh, but he's serving the temple, serving the tabernacle of the Lord. The sons of Eli were worthless men. Hmm. They did not know the Lord. Notice the definition by ex- by uh, extension, right? You could even put it like that. Uh, thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for men, the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So here's the thing. They have a job doing a holy thing, and they take advantage of the holy thing and treat it like it's not holy. Treat it like it's just for themselves. And as a result, they are basically scoffing at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, whether they know it or not. Right? They're, they're, they're standing there pointing a finger, laughing at him, saying he doesn't know reality. He doesn't know what the real world is like, and that they do. And what they do then is they steal from the offerings for themselves regularly. 
Now, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing, so he's hearing about this from other people. Hey, Eli, high priest, you know, the second in charge guy, you know, he's stealing my money every week. What's up with that? And how they even look at this. This is amazing. They lay with women. That's sex, people. They had sex with women at the entrance to the tent of in the tabernacle's gates. What? I mean, it's just, it's beyond hedonistic. They don't care. This is crass. They're not even ashamed of it. He even yells at him. He's not a very strong, tough love kind of guy, but he tries. Uh, why do you do such things? He says, for I hear of the evil th- dealings with these people. No, my sons, it's no good report. I hear of you, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. All right. That's just the way it is, though. He can't kick him out. He doesn't have the tough love to do it, which is rough. Giving tough love is rough, but man, if you don't do it, it just can get worse. So the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. That's a rare thing. Samson gets this. Jesus gets this. I feel like there might be one other guy who gets this. In any case, he, Samuel, chapter 3, verse 1, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, right? So following Joshua and like the judges and Othniel's raised up and all this stuff, right? All the way down to now we're cutting people up and sending them in the mail by the end of the book of Judges. Yeah, there's no more prophecy either, (laughs) right? They're done talking at this point. No frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, so he's quite aged at this point. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, also talked for five hours this morning. Uh, Samuel was lying down. Oh, sorry. I skipped it, didn't I? Eli, he can't see. His eyes are bad. He's lying down in his own place, right? So he's wherever he sleeps nearby the tabernacle. I'm not sure how they had this set up, but it doesn't seem to be quite normal. This doesn't seem quite in line with what they're supposed to have. The fact that he's sleeping so close and you're going to see Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. No one's supposed to go there. Nobody's supposed to go there ever. Once a year, the high priest only goes there. That's it, right? This is like not the way it's supposed to be. But the lamp of the Lord, there's a light, a burning torch, basically, that's supposed to be there all the time, or at least throughout the day. It had not yet gone out. But Samuel is again asleep right by all that. The box of God. God's actually there. The cloud is there. Where's the cloud? Did it disappear? Did they not know it's there? These other guys are stealing and having sex right there like it's nothing. There's no visions, though. Who knows? And each man's doing as he sees fit. And then the Lord called to Samuel. Boom. And Samuel goes, here I am. But he thinks it's not the Lord. He thinks this is Eli. So he runs in. He wakes up Eli. Poor Eli's like, oh, I don't even know. I'm an old man, right? And I got to go to the bathroom already. Ha. Um, he said, here I am. You called me. And Eli says, no, no, I didn't. Dude, you're, you're dreaming. Go to sleep. So he goes back. It happens again. Samuel. He rises again. Here, uh, Eli, you called me. And, no, my son. What are you doing? Seriously. Like, get away from the incense. Don't breathe so much. What are you doing? Go to bed. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, it tells us now. This is like random shot right here. Right? Look at this. Kind of in the middle of the story. He's not a Christian. He's circumcised. He's serving at the temple. He doesn't know the word of God. What? How'd this happen? That's what happened. Samuel did not know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time. He arose and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Like, seriously, Eli, stop joking. It's late. I want to go to bed too. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli has some faith here. This is really weird too. What do we make of this guy? He's he's limp-wristed. He can't do his job. He doesn't let his sons know what's what. So it means he's not really doing his job as a father either. And yet he knows to tell them it's wrong. He knows what the scriptures say. He knows God is calling. 
Samuel. And he's telling, he gives him the right instructions. Go back, lie down. When he calls again, say, speak, God, your servant listens, right? So, uh, tell him you're willing to listen to him, not me. Samuel went, lay down in his place. The Lord came, stood, called as other times, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, speak, O Lord, your servant listens. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 11, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel that which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, right? I mean, we'd say this, I'm about to make everybody's ears burn with itching from the news that will come to them. There will be a day I will fulfill. Now look, here's the sad thing. It's against Eli. He's a pitiable character. I'm not willing to say he's not a Christian, but he certainly is going to take his first article comeuppance and whoopings. Uh, for failing to respect the third commandment, the fourth commandment, the sixth commandment, maybe even the fifth commandment, definitely the seventh commandment, as the high priest of Israel. It's all going to kind of come down on his head now. The Lord's going to do this. It's going to make your ears burn. I declare to him all that I am about to punish his house for... Oh, no, first, I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. Now, in Israel, this is a big this is a big deal. You get certain things as a house that God gives you forever, and then he's going to take it away forever. You don't get it back. Like, this is brutal. He's high priest. He's going to lose it. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. So it's not even about what he did. It's about how he knew what others were doing and didn't speak. And particularly, he had the authority to stop them. So this isn't just like my neighbor and I need to go gossip to make them know how I know what they're doing is wrong. No, this is about his job as a father and as a priest was to make sure this didn't happen. And he didn't do that. And that way, it's on him. Their blasphemy is his. Although they're the blasphemers, he is simply going to have that blasphemy fulfilled against him. So he swears to the house of Eli, to Samuel, the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering ooh, forever. Now, you could make the case this is eternal. I'm going to say that this is more about the timeline of the bloodline of the priesthood. Never again will descendants from them serve in the priesthood. But if you want to make the case they're not Christians, like Eli's in hell, that's fine. I think it's an open question. Verse 15, Samuel laid down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Because he, Does he want to go wake up Eli a fourth time? Like, so here's what he said. Can you take notes? <laughs> yeah. uh, Samuel was afraid to tell him the vision. Verse 16, Eli called Samuel. Samuel said, and said, Samuel, my son. Uh, he said, here I am. Just like he said to God. Eli said, what was it he told you? Don't hide it. May God do to you more if you hide from me what he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Oh, this is key. So verse 18, this is why I like Eli. Eli says, this is a Luther answer, if ever was one. It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Now, maybe I'm wrong, because David has a different response, but it's not so far away. He says something similar, too. When he has his issue with Bathsheba, and then Nathaniel the prophet comes, and he tells him, well, you know, your son with Bathsheba is going to die after he's born, because of the way you did this, right? What does he do? He says, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. I did it first. Forgive me. And, and he gets it. He gets forgiveness immediately. And then he prays to the Lord that he would not kill the son. And this is kind of an interesting thing because, like, he already has the promise that the son's going to be going to die. It has to happen. And in this way, it's a picture of Jesus, by the way. Don't miss that. The son had to die for the safe, for the life of the world. So if God said the son's going to die, why would he pray against that? But then he says, the Lord is merciful. 
who knows if he will change his mind or not. You know, what, and then afterwards, the son dies, and he stops mourning. He stops praying. He says, praise the Lord, hallelujah, let's go on with life. And they're like, what are you talking about, dude? Your kid just died. He's like, yeah, I know. The Lord's going to do what the Lord's going to do. I prayed. He didn't answer. But he answered in the big way, so we'll go on. David's incredible. Like, what, David? How'd you, what? That's pretty impressive. Eli, he wants to be there. He wants to say the Lord's will be done. And somewhere in this, there's like this piece where it's like, wait, why didn't he repent? Why didn't he go tell his sons to repent? In any case, Samuel grows. The Lord is with him. None of his words fall to the ground. That's Samuel's, right? So when he preaches, people hear, people listen, and the faith of Israel is stirred up. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So it, it is interesting. So Moses goes away and he says, there will be another prophet like me. You're to listen to him. And this is really the first time we have someone like that shown up in history. And indeed, they are to listen to him. Samuel's a, he's a prophet. He's, he, he leads Israel through some pretty impressive times. And there's some real intense stuff still coming in the storyline. For example, there's the whole bit where the Ark of the Covenant gets taken out by the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. As part of like a military campaign, they think they're going to use the magic box to go fight their enemies, and God doesn't go with them, and they just get walloped. They get destroyed. In fact, Hophni and Phinehas both get killed. That's the fulfillment of this very thing, is uh, the chapter or two that follows after this. They both die in the battle. And the Ark of the Covenant, the box which makes Israel what Israel is, without which the world cannot be saved, without, what the pro- without which the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promises to Joseph, promises to Daniel, Isaiah, Adam, Eve, all this. None of it happens. It all doesn't happen. And the whole cosmos goes to hell because the Ark of the Covenant is the covenant that's supposed to save us from all of this. And it no longer is in the land. It's been stolen by Marduk. Yeah, the followers of Marduk, the Philistines. And so uh, they take the box, right? They, take, they conquer the army, kill the people. The sons are dead. They take the box. They take it back to their temple, the god of uh, the temple of the god Marduk. I think it's Marduk. Um, and they set it up in there. And this is, the, this is my favorite story in the whole Bible. I kid you not. I love the resurrection more, but this is my favorite story. So you have these pagans, and they bring this golden box, and they put it before their giant statue of a god because he's like got like what fangs and horns and nostrils and swords and whatever. He's all scary and big, and we conquered them. They put the box in there. It's our God, right? It's the, it's the Christian God. He lives in the box, like literally. There he is. He's your God. You know, Our God now has your God captive. Sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cough again. <coughs> it's all allergies, don't worry. Um, so so uh, they put the box in there. They shut the doors. They get out. High five. We, we did it. Next morning, they walk in, and like that giant, you know, megaton statue. I, I don't know how big this statue is. It's big. It's heavy. It's rock, right? It's laying face down on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It's in submission to the Ark of the Covenant. And they're like, nobody was in here. Hey, priest, what happened? No, we don't know. We don't know. Let's, let's put it back up. They put it back up. It happens again. <laughs> Next night, statue falls down. There are gods on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the, the Bible's so great at this. Like, they doesn't tell you that it happened the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, but it did. And you know it did, because what it tells you next is that, like, in the fields of northern Israel, there were some people, like, you know, like Ruth and Boaz, they're out there, like, harvesting their crops. They're, you know, gleaning the fields and working together, and, call oh, the Philistines are oppressing us recently and all this, but whatnot. And they look up, and here comes a cart, like an ox cart, with an ox 
pulling the cart. And in the cart is the Ark of the Covenant, uncovered, gold, solid gold. There was a plated, plated gold, acacia wood, plated gold, okay? This is valuable here. It'll kill you if you touch it, but, but it's valuable. It's coming toward them on a cart driven by oxen with nobody leading it. How long has this thing been going? Miles? Hundreds of miles all the way back to the Temple of Margaret. They slap the axe on the backside, ox on the backside, and off it goes. And this is the best part. The Ark brings itself back. They go out with the Ark to fight for them. They lose, but the Ark doesn't. <laughs> the Ark doesn't. The Ark knocks over their god. <laughs> yeah, And then comes right on back, gets pulled back up and put into the, the tabernacle at Shiloh. Now, before that happens, Eli had been sitting on the roof and uh, uh, waiting for word of the war. And there's a sad moment. Um, when he hears, thank you, Samuel. Oh, I just got saved here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was Dagon, not Marduk. Dosh. I should know that because it sounds like dragon, which is really cool. Dagon, not Marduk. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, how could I have my Philistine gods so mixed up? Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, now I lost my track of where it was. Oh, yeah. Eli is sitting on his, on his roof or on a wall uh, watching for news. And the news comes that everyone's killed. The news comes that his sons are both dead. And in his consternation, his chair breaks, like he's leaning back or something, and it snaps. I, I, don't, I don't remember the specifics of that part of the text. Too many cartoons as a kid throw me off there. Um, and I mean Bible cartoons. Uh, tangent, right? How do you know what you saw in a Bible cartoon is actually what the Bible says? You don't until you look. Uh, he falls. He falls and he dies. And it's like, well, but wasn't he a believer? Maybe. Wait, so God lets bad things happen to believers? Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't stop our sins from coming back on our heads in this life sometimes. He does forgive us of them. They're all buried in Jesus. They will not cling to you at the day of resurrection. Will Eli be there? I do not know. We're entering into a couple of stories like that. The same question is going to be asked about Saul. Saul has a far worse chance. King Saul does not look good. He looks Judas level not good. It's very sad. We'll, we'll dig into that a little bit next week, potentially. Or we would have in the lectionary. But... What I want you to pull out of this is that from this moment on, God is feeding his people with his word, according to a preacher, a prophet. And Samuel's pretty special in terms of the types of signs and wonders he does, all this kind of stuff. But he's, he's most known for being a gospel preacher. He travels all over Israel and he brings them the promise. Look, we're in the time of the judges. He may not say that. You know, we're in the time waiting for the prophet who is to come, and I am not him. And for a whole generation, this works out pretty well. Now, um, yes, Mike Vassal says, uh, Marty, because one of the Babylonian gods, you are correct. Um, from the God is Judging series, you, you probably are right about that, too. Uh, because uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is it Shadrach? Meshach. One of those is, the name Marduk is built into one of those. In any case. The irony of this whole thing is that... Um, Samuel's sons aren't much better than Eli's sons. It kind of goes the same way. And then you have this itch that starts to pick up from the people toward the end of Samuel's life, especially as they notice his sons are not reliable. And eventually they approach him and they ask him to ask God to make them a melech. Now, when you see melech in the Bible, you're going to see it translated as the word king, which is fine but you got to hear it as like divine king. Pharaoh would actually be better. God king would be kind of closer. It's not just some guy who's got a throne, right? It's more than that. Uh, and 
that's the word they ask for. So they don't just come and say, can we have a king? They come and they ask for a God king. They ask for a man to be their God king, and they're not asking for Jesus. Now Samuel's all upset. He's like, why are my sons good enough? Why haven't I served you all enough? And God's like, are you kidding me? They're They're rejecting me, man. Your sons are worthless, but I am being rejected. But here's what you're going to do. You're going to give them a king. And they will see what a melech will do. And then I'll show them what a real king will do later. So the, the god king, Melech, Saul um, never really is that, right? And he fails in almost every way. We'll come back on Saul. David is not a Melech either, but he is the shepherd of Israel. So that's a different pattern than the god king for the ruler. He's instead the one who uh, what serves on behalf. So when Jesus comes then, what does he do? Well, he's David, the one who serves on behalf of the Father, but he's also the God King, the Son of God, yeah. So he does become the Melech that they could never have, and we didn't even know we were asking for. So there's a lot of beauty in that too. You see, the same theme the judges have been giving us all the way along, we can't even begin. All we do is mess this thing the heck up. And the Lord gives more grace, and the Lord gives more grace, and the Lord gives more grace, which is never an excuse to mess it up on purpose, nor do you want to mess it up. Because, you know, you might go out to fight with the Ark of the Covenant and get yourself destroyed because you believe in the wrong stuff. So it's not an excuse for your sin. Not at all. But it is an excuse for your sin. Entirely. You are excused. You are justified. Same word. In Jesus Christ. In this then, right? Uh, the hope that we have through all of this is that this good news is here with us today. The same promise, the same Lord, the same gospel. Yeah, veiled with different shadows. Their shadows were the Ark of the Covenant. Our shadows are bread and wine, water, and they're not so shadowy, are they now? They're right there. Just had some today. Uh, That resurrection, that presence of God, box of the covenant now, is with you, and you are incapable of dying so long as he is one with you. The only thing that could stop it is if you don't believe it, which sadly a lot of people don't want to. But the gift, it is just straight up given. I'm going to read you a couple more texts. These would have been the appointed texts for the day as well. I won't go into these as much in detail. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 selected. Do you not know? This is the warning against Eli's sons, really. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, that is the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I'm now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, this is nobody who's a sinner, right, will enter the kingdom, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, past, past tense, such were some of you, but you were washed, don't miss this, with water, you think? Baptized, maybe? You were sanctified, that's made holy. You were justified, that's excused, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. Now, what I want you to take out of this is just see this here. This is no excuse to think any of these things are good. All these things, when we do them, hurt other people in some way, shape, or form. The point is not that if you were some of these things, or even that you experienced the temptation of some of these things, that therefore you have no faith. That's not the point. 
The point is that the person who says these things aren't bad, they don't have any faith. <clears throat> faith says, yep, these are wrong. Uh -huh. I am such a one who does not deserve to inherit the kingdom. I repent. And then Jesus covers it all, right? All things are lawful for me then. It's a really interesting phrase. Like technically as a Christian, you can't fall away. You can't do anything wrong. You can't go to hell. It's impossible. As a Christian, you still got your sinner with you too though, right? Two natures, one flesh. And so while all things are lawful for you, not all things are helpful. Huh? Much less for like everybody else. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Don't you know that your bodies, all of you, all of you, plural, are members of Christ? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? Now, again, I'm pretty confident uh, it's plural, but I got to check on that. This might be the one spot where it goes singular, but it's been plural all the way through. So your body as a temple of the Spirit is never without everybody else's body also part of the same temple of the Spirit, which is the body of Jesus, which again is the supper at the end of the day. So don't think it's just about your body and keeping healthy, although staying healthy is a good idea if you can. Uh, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit from God. Oh, look at that. What showed up? Uk este yauton. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. I don't know the next, the rest part, next of it in Greek. I got to learn that part still. Glorify God in your body. The gospel. The gospel according to, sorry, I'm scrolling around a bunch, John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling ox and sheep and pigeons, the money changers, sitting there, making a whip of cords. He drove out all of them from the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables poured out, I should say. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, to not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you do for us showing these things? Oh, I said that poorly, didn't I? What sign do you show for us for doing, show us for doing these things, right? What, what authority do you have to throw us all out of the temple? Samuel. <laughs> Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now, what's he talking about, right? His body, the one we just talked about in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Wow, it's pretty bold. The Jew says, it took 46 years to build this temple, not his body, but the building. You're not going to raise this up in three days. Uh, John's like, they didn't get it. He was speaking about the temple of his body. The one that you now feast with, that you are now part of the temple of the Holy Spirit, that one. Uh, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and all the words Jesus had spoken. Now, when, and this is key to the false teaching Eli's son's part here, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. The point of this is nobody gets it. Even those who believe in him, those chasing him, those calling his name, those praising him with words like Hosanna, hallelujah, they don't get it. They don't get it. Not until after he rises from the dead. Which we should say, we get it, and we don't. Our sinner doesn't, our saint does. Confess, I will never get it. I don't understand grace and rejoice. I believe in grace. I get it. I got it. Ooh, that's good, right? Oh, that was an Easter egg. Not a good one, but it was. Uh, let's pray. What do you say? Lord Jesus, High priest who never fails to make the perfect offering. Lord Jesus, who answered the Father's call for our salvation, make us to know our sanctification 
in name. And so rest, oh, and so, it should be in your name, in your name. And so resist the binding yokes of the carnal passions. For you live and reign in the Father's presence by your Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Mm. Ah, now Jesus from the Psalms. Here I am, I have come, right? Here I am, Lord. Ah, it's all connected. Beautiful stuff. Lenten verse for the day. When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered the word he had spoken. Do not forget in the midst of everything else that's going on right now, the words Jesus spoke. He spoke that he would die. He spoke that he would rise. He has done both now already. And so you may be confident, absolutely certain and confident, though they take your life away, coronavirus or otherwise, that death ain't the real thing. And whatever it looks like will be overcome by the body that is already risen from the dead, which is Jesus, which is you, according to his great and precious promises given. Given in the supper and, of course, in your baptism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, 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 I am going to see, I'm going to go back to my main thing here. There's 45 of you, it's Sunday afternoon, I'm working my tail off, and you got me 11 likes. 11? You can get a 20, right? I'm not going to stick around to watch because I need to just take a shower. <laughs> I'm so tired. Uh, but it was, again, it was, I, I, I don't want to do church like this the rest of my life at all. I would if I had to, but we shouldn't. We, there's no way this should stop us from meeting. Um, I, it was special, though. I, I, it's been amazing to do and to have. And I really, it's strengthened us. It's tightened us, I think. Um, but I'll tell you, standing there for five hours straight doing 30 divine services, oh, I didn't know what was what by the end of that thing. I'm like, wait, did I just do the Lord's Prayer or did I do the Apostles' Creed? I can't remember. Uh, and then I had a thought, though, and maybe this will be a nice one. Thanks for the extra likes. We got to 20. Appreciate it. I, I, another thought um, uh, that I had today, and I'll try to share with you as I go. Because um, it was interesting being there from 8 a.m. till 1 p.m., doing a service every 10 minutes, give or take. And, uh, it wasn't all signed up, but I'll tell you, we went, we didn't stop. I did. I sat down when people walked out of the building, and came in for like 30 seconds. Right. And I was doing it every time cause I was so tired. Um, but it was just constant, which is great. It's amazing. But I was thinking about it, like, that's really hard. And I started thinking about the, like the Carthusians, you know, the Carthusians, either these guys they are still out there. I bet. Uh, these are the Roman Catholics. You can pay to do the Lord's supper in private for you, but it counts for you. You don't even have to go. They'll do it all the time, once a week, once a day, once a year. He's got to pay him money. Right? It's like salvation for money. It's great, right? Carthusians are one of the things the Lutherans got really upset about early in the Reformation. Like, this is bad. You're selling the Lord's Supper and people don't even get it. What's up with that, right? Well, so what they would do is they would, and if you go to certain Roman Catholic places, you can see they'll have like an altar every 10 feet going up toward the main altar. Well, that's so that you can have 15 priests in there doing the Lord's Supper just for themselves, for you. You're not there, though, all the time, right? Carthusianism is what that's called. And we really don't like this as Lutherans, as Reformation Christians, as Protestants, as Bible believers. You just can't like this because the supper's for you. That's what the Word says for you. So... I'm sitting here thinking about, wow, the Carthusians, did they go for five hours? I wonder if they went for eight. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not a Carthusian because eight would be hard. Because after two, you're like, I got three left. Wow. So after five, wow. Okay, so that's the first thing. But then the second thought after I'm like, I'm glad I'm not a Carthusian doing this for eight hours straight. I thought about how our Lord was probably nailed to the cross around nine o'clock. Even though the sun went dark around noon and it would seem he hung there until about three 
and at three, he died. That's six hours. And so when I was getting tired, I said, well, if he, if he could hang there for six hours, Jonathan, you better darn well stand here for five. I wasn't about to walk out, but I hope you take that for what that's worth because we all need that, don't we? I think we do. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow with something. Don't know what. We'll see. But for now, I'm checking out. I'm not going to wall in the muck. You shouldn't either. So uh, lift up your head with those who have the hope. And, of course, remember to rock on.